Welcome to the podcast about stories from the center of the universe. I'm Daniel Lance. I'm Paul Gilman, and this is Podzo One. Amanda Ripley is a journalist and author whose work has been featured in Time Magazine, The New York Times, The Washington Post, The Wall Street Journal, and others. She has written three books on psychological and cultural themes varying from how we respond to disaster to how we get addicted to conflict. Amanda talked with us about growing up in central New Jersey, the private versus public school experience, what it's like to be a journalist, and some of her extensive work, including her recent article entitled The Mystery of Trust. In it, she explores why the U.S. military is currently the only institution that seems to hold Americans' trust, and how other institutions, like our beloved Congress, can learn from them on this. So without further ado, here is Amanda Ripley. Amanda Ripley, welcome to Podso One. Thanks for having me, guys. Good to see you. We are. Uh, I, I'm ecstatic to have you uh, on this podcast, Amanda, because when uh, Mason said your name for the first time, I'm like, she sounds like a baller, a really important kind of person. There's no way we ever get her on the podcast, but I'm going to give it a shot. And here we are. You're on the podcast. Are you sure he wasn't talking about the Amanda Ripley from Alien? Well, I, 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 <laughs> so there Amanda, is another. There is a more famous. Like he, I could be the wrong. Maybe you have the wrong person. Here. I don't know who that is. She's a fictitious character from a movie a long, long time ago. Who right? just happens to have the same name as I do, but she's super famous. If if you right Google on. Amanda Ripley, uh, the Amanda Ripley we're talking to now will, will not come up first, typically. Right, but <laughs> it, the other Amanda Ripley has an action figure. She does. She's but, awesome. But you're real and she's not. <laughs> right. That's details. Yeah. <laughs> very cool. Well, Amanda, we're very happy to have you on tonight. Uh, like most of our guests, we start with uh, where you grew up and what, what that, those experiences were like. I was born in Tucson, Arizona, um, lived in the basically the foothills, the desert for four years and then moved to New Jersey, central Jersey, very different from Arizona. And uh Grew up mostly there. Um, pretty suburban, pretty boring story, I think. Uh, I, I remember most of all being really bored as a kid in, in suburban New Jersey. There was like nowhere to go, nothing to do unless you had a car, you know. And then we happened to live near this super fancy boarding school mm. in the same town. And it was all boys, always had for like hundreds of years. <laughs> and it was like, it looked like something out of a movie, you know, with like wrought iron gates and just ridiculous. And uh, my parents were really into education. My mom had been a teacher, but they couldn't afford this place. But they, they decided for my older brother that, I mean, I don't think they didn't know really much about it at the time. <laughs> I think it was like a world they didn't have a lot of experience with. Um, but uh, they, 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 they managed to find a way because I think he didn't really love the public school we were in and they found scraped scraped together some money and they said, okay, you can go there for the last three years of high school and you, you have to be a day student because it's much cheaper. And he said, great. And he did it. And then while he was there, they went co-ed. So now my parents were like, Oh no, <laughs> now we have to give her the same option. Me, you know? Uh, and so I did the same thing. I, and they, it was not easy for them to, to get the money together to do that. But to their credit, they wanted to be fair and gender neutral. And uh, so I went, I went for, which is, which is how I know Mason, which is how I know you. 
What, how, uh, what would they have done if uh, Lawrenceville was not co-ed at the time? I would have just carried on. This was the funny thing. It wasn't like, oh, we'll apply to a bunch of private schools. And you know, it was just, I think because it was there and it was so like, it seemed so fancy and everybody said it was so great and like amazing. And it just felt like something they should do because my brother really wanted to go there. And he loved it actually. Um, I, I didn't love it as much, but I, I kind of just, it seemed like the right thing to do. You know, it's an amazing opportunity to go there. Um, but do you think it helped? <laughs> Do you think it helped with uh, college applications? <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, what's funny is, I mean, yeah, I'm not going to complain about it. Like, but I, I found it and maybe it was because it, I was in the first year of girls, you know, I mean, who knows what weird implications that had, but I just felt like I didn't, I didn't fit in there. Like it just seemed, I mean, partly being a day student, you never really fit in. Cause you're like, most people are there all the time. They live there. And, and you're like this random loser who comes in, you know, just for the, the classes and then leaves. And, uh, but, uh, but also just, you know, a lot of money for some people, not everybody there and, and just things I didn't have any experience with. And I never really felt like I quite fit in. It wasn't terrible, but it wasn't great. Um, a lot of great athletes. I was not a great athlete. I was like a mediocre athlete. <laughs> And, um, and so, but the end result of all that, obviously it did, I'm sure help me get into college and I was well prepared for college. And it also made me like pretty skeptical of, um, sort of, uh, institutions that are supposed to be elite and powerful. That was like my own internal way of processing it. Like I just became kind of like suspicious or skeptical of, of <laughs> super elite places. And, uh, and, and that's helped me a lot in my journalism. So that's, you know, whether that's fair or not, it's probably not fair. Um, that was one way that, that it affected me, I think. So you, you weren't a boarding student, you weren't, uh, from money, you were, you weren't a super athlete and, uh, it, and you were one of the first females to go to that school. It had to be like landing on Mars a bit. <laughs> yeah, it was. I mean, like, you know, it was beautiful. Um, and it was, there were some great teachers and um, lots of like, you know, real wood tables, stuff like that. <laughs> and um, it was very different than my public school. Um, but, but yeah, it was, it was a strange experience. And I think it's changed a lot since then, actually. But um, it was kind of in transition, let's say. Yeah, and, and the Northeast of the U.S. is known for having really uh, elite, uh, powerful boarding schools. And I think Lawrenceville still is in the, uh, I'm saying top 10, I don't really know, but certainly single digits in the country. Uh, maybe California's changing that these days, but when you went there, it, it was a, an elite place to be and you just happen to live there and you're yeah. surrounded by people that frankly took things for granted that you and your family probably didn't take for granted uh socially it, it had to be really challenging and i can share that i went to what is elite in richmond a, a prep school in richmond and i was not from the k through 12 prep school experience i did public schools through eighth grade and i i thought i'd landed on a different planet i couldn't mm -hmm. imagine being the first uh one of uh, the first 10 males going to an all-female school couldn't imagine. Yeah. Yeah. So it sounds like you can kind of, kind of relate. And a little uh, bit. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, I'm sure I brought some baggage to that table. Like it's not just the school, but, um, that, that was for me. Um, 
I guess, I guess part of it is it made me feel like I don't actually, um, like where I fit in best is not in places like that. Um, now then I went to an Ivy league college, so I just realized I sound like a huge hypocrite. Um, <laughs> so maybe it's all not true. Maybe everything I said is bullshit. Well, <laughs> you, well, you, you didn't, you didn't figure it out till you, you, you didn't figure it out till years later, maybe. Yep. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> this idea of like, you know, prestigious, uh, highly regarded institutions having sort of a veneer. Uh, did you kind of see any of that with, with Cornell, just, just like you do with your high school? Yeah, Cornell is sort of a different animal because, which I also didn't know getting into it. Like um, Cornell is, there's like five colleges. I mean, there's a bunch of colleges that are public at Cornell and then there's private ones too. So it's a weird combination. And then there's a ton of kids from Long Island, um, sort of like New York, not, not really New York city, but Long Island. And that's its own culture, subculture, right? Uh, I, which I also had no experience with. Um, it's actually a much more um, kind of uh, overt and accessible culture like you you can there's no kind of there's not a lot of like behind the scenes maneuvering and like weird subtle signals like there is in the wasp subculture mm. but but the long island thing is a whole other so so in that sense it, it's not it wasn't quite as sort of um uh you know uh extreme in its elitism but certainly obviously it is still it was still a, a prestigious place and um but but I felt like maybe because it's big, you know, it's like twenty thousand students. I felt I felt really comfortable there. Personally, uh, where else did you apply, Amanda? Out of curiosity, I remember where I didn't get into. Do you guys remember that? Like at those? Uh, oh my gosh! <laughs> yep. I, did, I dis okay. I, I where dislike, did you not get into? I dislike <laughs> those institutions to this day. I didn't get into Dartmouth and uh -huh. uh, and and Amherst. I think. Me too. I didn't get into Amherst or Yale. Right but, on. Yeah. Yeah. I, I didn't get into any of those places because I never applied to those places. Uh, my my uh, one regret is uh, Duke University did not let me in. Oh, bastards. Yeah, exactly. And Duke being from. Not, are they an Ivy? They're just. Or... They're not Ivy. They're, uh, they're, they're the Ivy of the South, if, if that's a thing. Nice. Yeah. yeah. And by the way, I didn't apply to any of those Ivy League schools because I didn't know they really existed until after <laughs> high school. Well, after high school. It's kind of amazing, right? Looking back at what we knew and didn't know and. Yeah, it's crazy. I, I wish I was 18 sometimes, but, yeah. <laughs> but, but usually not. <laughs> <laughs> right. So Very I'm, cool. I'm like halfway through your book. I just, cause we're talking about education. I'm, I'm halfway through your, uh, your latest one, the smartest kids in the world. And uh, I feel like bringing it up here uh, and, and wondering, you know, you were able to go to these prestigious institutions. Did you draw on any of that experience when, when you were putting together um, your book? Yeah. I mean, I think, um, yeah, I'm sure it influenced me in a lot of ways. I mean, I, I know um, one of the things that I was reminded of in writing that book, so I followed three American teenagers to countries that have much higher performing education systems, and they were enrolling in public high schools there, living with host families on exchange. And so they really helped lead me through um, writing the book, like what was important to them? What did they think about? What did they think was different or what was better about their school in America or their neighborhood in America versus in Finland or Poland or Korea? And one of the things that kept coming up, and this is why it was, I mean, critical to have them because you forget 
as you get older, what it's actually like to be 15, right? <laughs> and what it's actually like. So in, in education reporting and in education policy and education debates, like there's so much emphasis on the curriculum, on the teachers, on the, uh, you know, all these kinds of things, testing. And, and that is really important, right? But for teenagers, you know, w- what they think most about 99% of the time are other teenagers. <laughs> so yeah. like the peer influence is way more powerful by high school than the parents or the teachers or the principal. And not to say those things don't matter, but I think they don't matter as much as we think, you know, as, as parents and teachers and principals. So uh, it reminded me of how, you know, at Lawrenceville, it was like this unbelievably pristine, beautiful campus with amazing classes and, and opportunities and uh, really good teachers. And, but like the thing that really was salient were the other kids and the culture that the sort of subculture that's invisible to adult eyes. So you really, right. you, you need kids as a reporter, you really need students to be your sources um, because there's just things you can't see anymore. Yeah, that's funny. Uh, that, that kind of sh- collective short-term memory loss when you get past your teenage years and, and you turn around and say, Oh, it must be the curriculum or the teachers or the funding, right. you know. <laughs> it's crazy. We forget what it's like to be a teenager. I know. We all did it. And yet it's like wiped. Yeah. Uh, yeah. that's uh, One of the concepts that you bring up is like this sort of cultural reverence, I, I'd say, for, for education, whether it's like respected. And that, that plays into that peer dynamic because if your friends care a lot about school, you're going to care a lot about school. Um, did you s- sense like when you were growing up, going from public to uh, Lawrenceville, from a public school to Lawrenceville, did you sense a difference in that sort of respect and reverence for education? Yeah, that's really interesting. I, and totally, I totally agree. Like, um, I'll answer that question, but I, it just reminds me of a quick story, which is um, there was this girl, Jenny, who I met in Korea. Um, and she, um, she was just sort of an unusual situation where she had been born in Korea, raised, you know, she's Korean. And then she moved to New Jersey and lived there for like five years and moved back to Korea, <laughs> lived there for five years and moved back. So she was like a double agent. You know, she could really more than almost anyone else compare the different places. And she said that she was a different person in America than she was in Korea. And it was entirely about her friends because in Korea, her friends studied all the time. And so did she. So like literally in Korea, you go to school all day and then you go to these like private tutor tutoring schools all night. And so like literally there's a curfew at midnight, <laughs> like they're not allowed to be open after that. Um, so that's what she did in Korea. And in America, that's wild. yeah, in America, she would like go to school and then go to like, you know, track and then go to like hang out and then like, go, you know, and so she was a different person because of the influence of everyone around her. Um, but uh but I think for me, going from public school to private school, I mean, interested, Paul, in what, what you think. I mean, I found like um, certainly private school was easier in the sense there was less kind of conflict, like physical conflict. <laughs> like at public school, sometimes a fight would just break out, you yeah. know, and you just, no idea, like just happens. And uh, now as a, as a female, I was not typically involved in those and maybe not as likely to be involved. Um in that situation. So uh, it wasn't like I was in danger at my public school. It wasn't really, <laughs> it wasn't the mean streets of uh, Lawrenceville, New Jersey, but, but, and so at private school, people were like more polite, well-behaved, you know, people generally seem to want to be there. 
so in that sense, I think the kids are easier to teach on average, not always. Um, but I saw way more like cheating and drug use in, in the fancy school than I saw really in the public school. Yeah. And that could have been just who knows coincidence or who I knew in each place or, um, or an abundance of money, maybe. Uh, yeah. I don't know. School. What did you notice? Yeah. Uh, I certainly there were fights in public school and i never saw a fight, uh, in private school. Uh, certainly more polite. I, one of the things that I'd noticed is, uh, if you weren't part of the inner crowd, you really felt like an outsider where in public schools, there was enough diversity where you could fit in somewhere. Hmm. Um, I, I, there's also zero tolerance for uh, lying, cheating, stealing sort of thing in my private school and at public school is just, that's what, that's how you survive. That's how you get by. Oh, wow. This is the opposite. Yeah. Very much the opposite. Now drug use. I, I do go back to, if you have a lot of disposable income, you tend to buy some things that maybe aren't great for you. And so drug use seemed more obvious in the private school. Uh, but I, don't, I wouldn't say it was prevalent. I don't want to throw my uh, private school under the bus at the time, but I didn't know what cocaine was yeah. until high school. No, no, I, <laughs> I wouldn't say it was prevalent in yeah. either place for me. Right. Who knows what it's like now? Yeah. Yeah. No clue. Yeah. So, uh, so Amanda, when did like writing become something that you were uh, interested in? You know, that was where a teacher was influential. And I know this is like such a cliched story, but it's true. It's my ninth grade public school English teacher, Ms. Venanzi, who was kind of like a hard ass. Like the rumor was she used to be a nun and something had happened. I don't know if that's true, but that's she incredible. was not a nun. <laughs> and, but she was like, she was tough, right? And I mean, usually the best teachers are kind of like loved and hated. And she was like that. She, she's like, didn't take any crap, pushed people really hard. And, and so I guess maybe because of that, I respected it or feared her. And she told me that I was a good writer. And I was like, oh, well, um, I guess I should just do more of that because, and it's not like, it's not like I was like, oh, I have a calling, you know, it was more like, well, if I'm good at that thing, I better do, do the easy thing. Play your strengths, yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> like if you're great at basketball, you don't go play baseball unless, you know, you're Michael Jordan or something. But like, I think it's typically someone tells you you're good at something and you, if you respect them, then you're like, you want to do it more. I don't know. Yeah. And if you're, if you're young, still and impressionable, um, that helps a lot too. Yeah. It kind of reminds me of the, the kids that like tell themselves they're not good at math and then they end up not being good at math because it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. It's just the totally. other side of that. Yeah. yeah it can work yeah. the other way. That's exactly right. So I, I'm very curious. She was a nun. What's the leading theory for what happened? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I always just assumed that she'd had some kind of falling out with the Vatican. I'm, I'm sure that's not true, but she just was, a, she was just like a, she, her personality had corners. You know what I mean? Like <laughs> there was probably some authority, but I, I have no idea. I don't want her to sue me. I have no idea. <laughs> she, she led you to your calling. Exactly. At least, yeah. Or at least how you've been spending a lot of time last <laughs> right. two plus decades. Right. Like, God, if someone had told me I was good at chemistry, you have a totally different story. <laughs> I, nobody would have said that. So, so do you enjoy writing more or uh, journalism? Oh, like reporting versus yeah, the writing. Yes. Oh, that's interesting. Um, fact, yeah. Go ahead. Well, what's your distinction between writing and journalism? Yeah, that's a good question. So writing like the sitting down writing an outline trying to come up with language that's compelling and clear and uh captures your imagination and um accurate that's like a very small percentage of my job interestingly it's sort of funny um 
most of my days are not spent doing that. Uh, most of my days, I do a lot. I do a ton of reporting. So I would define that as like everything from you know research and reading, but mostly interviewing people. Uh, and I interview a lot of people and I don't use a lot of what I find because it's like a, a lot of the stories I do, it's unclear in the, for a long time like what they're going to be about. And um, so I spend a lot of time on, on that. And then, um, and then the writing part is, is, is relatively small percentage. But I would say uh, reporting is more fun. I mean, writing is like, you know, scratching your eyes out. I mean, I, I don't, there are people who, writers who, it just flows, you know, like Stephen King, you know, but like most people, I think it's hard, you know, it's hard, mm. it's painful. There's, there's moments that, that are, um, you know, effervescent, but mostly not. Where do you get the, uh, like, so, so for me, um, kind of going out and reporting and, and inserting myself into situations and, and asking people questions kind of feels like a little bit of a nightmare. Like, you know, for the, for the book, for the education book example, you went and tracked down three American teenagers, followed them to Korea, Finland, and Poland, and went and met with like secretaries of education and all these like high up people. Um, it just by, just by like, I guess, uh, boldly inserting yourself into situations like that. Is that something that comes to you naturally? Or like, how did you build that kind of aptitude? And, and so when you say it sounds like a nightmare, cause it's like, um, probably like fear of rejection, you know, like, being oh, like yeah. Hey, you know, like, you mind if this, that, and then, uh, uh, Amanda, let me, let me make this crystal clear. <laughs> Who, who's asking the question, Daniel and I have business cards for the podcast just because I'm old and business cards are a thing for me. I said, Hey, Daniel, I'm going to hand out 490. You hand, <laughs> hand out 10. And he's like, Oh my gosh. <laughs> I'm like, no, nope, no, sir. No, maybe one to your mom. That's it. <laughs> yeah. You know me really well. <laughs> no, it's funny. Cause I have, parts of both the Paul and the Daniel streak. Like I, I get both of those. Like there are parts of me that don't ever want to call anyone, you know, maybe, inter maybe it's introversion. I don't know. But, um, but then as, because you can hide behind this mask of journalism, you know, you can be like, I'm calling from time magazine. And like, you can, you just, it's almost like playing a part, you know? And so it's easier. But what I couldn't do is like, go door to door campaigning. I mean, I could never sell girls call cookies. Like, so, so I get that, um, mm. that, that piece of like reaching out to people. I hate, I hate, and I'm, it makes me a bad reporter. Like I really don't like, you know, calling people who may not want to talk to me. Like that is not, <laughs> that's not a strength. So I always call people I know want to talk or have already talked and want to tell their story or like okay. so so i'm not like your breaking news kind style reporter who's going to show up at the crime scene and like put a camera in your face you know that would be so you're normal okay good well, hold on and mandy you're not like me then because i assumed you didn't want to talk to us but, but <laughs> see, see? <laughs> you did. Yeah. if i was the one trying to get you on the podcast amanda i don't know if this, i would have ever even talked <laughs> to you yeah you, you would have deleted that email seven times before you <laughs> yeah you gotta ask you gotta ask right all right so if you're going to create the frankenstein education system let's say in central jersey or central virginia what parts of finland poland and uh south korea's education systems would you put together to create a better system i love that question why has no one asked me that question I, in those words i don't know but it's a good question so i would take the education colleges that train teachers of finland 
for sure, because they do a good job of it. It's respected, which creates a sort of reverence we were talking about for education. It's a serious, hardcore profession that people are impressed by at parties, that kind of thing, which is really important. Um, that, that's the first thing I would do. The second thing I would do would take just 10% of the Korean zeal for learning. You don't want 100%. You don't want 50%. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 10%. Actually, what I might do is take 10% of our zeal for sports and just apply it. That's all you need. That's all you need. Just flip it and give them. <laughs> they can have the sports thing. Right. Like just trade, a trade deal is what a I would do. osmosis. Yeah. 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 Like we need, because it's exactly the same. Like make no mistake. You can do a find replace on sports and education between Korea and the US. It's the same mentality, same excess, same driving kids insane with intensity, um, same money, you know, in like kind of co complex that's built up around it. So um, it, it's very similar. Um, and then with Poland, I'd probably take the thrift, you know, Poland spends like half what we spend per student on education and like, they just don't do any nonsense. So there's no like, you know, smart boards in every room and like, you know, uh, tablets for every, you know, I mean, it's different now with the pandemic, obviously, but uh, most of, I mean, the U.S. spends a lot of money on things that don't lead to learning historically. Yeah, that is a perfect answer. I, I was trying to come up with that answer for myself, and you, you just nailed it. And of course, you should because you're a writer and you happen to write that piece and did a ton of research. It's my but one it, job. It's my one thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just synthesizing ideas so succinctly like that, just amazing. Uh, but yeah, I love the idea of, of making teachers kind of into these badasses, like at, at parties. Because right now, when someone is says I'm a teacher, the, the reaction seems to be in the U.S. You know, that's so noble of you to go and make not enough money to live. But thanks for doing charity work so much. Yeah, yeah thanks, thanks for doing yeah. charity yeah. work. And like, yeah. I respect you. I respect your big heart for doing that. Uh, but it's, it's sort of also like, if I wanted to do that, I would have just gone and done that uh, as well. But if if it instead is more along the lines of like being an astronaut or a doctor, or, you know, like those, those educational colleges in Finland you were talking about, that'd be cool. Cause then it would be not only respect for their intentions, but also a, uh, wow, like you're basically a Navy SEAL, but you know, for, for kids. So I love that idea. My sister's a teacher and, and like her job is just so much harder than mine. And uh, I think that the universe isn't fair about it. Uh, so yeah. Yeah. I totally agree. It's a big deal. I mean, uh, I met this teacher from Finland who was on an exchange program. She was studying to be a teacher in Finland and she came to Missouri uh, for like a semester and <laughs> I can't remember which school, but she said one of the biggest, I asked, I kept thinking, I stupidly was like, so what's the difference? Like, how are the classes here? Are they not, you know, again, I was like very fixated on the, the top down like policy. And she's like, yeah, the biggest difference is at parties. And I said, what do you mean? And she's like, well, when I tell people what I'm majoring in, like they're here in America, their eyes glaze over and they start looking for someone else to talk to. Like there are no follow-ups, you know, that's it. And in, in Finland, when I tell people, they're like, oh, wow, really? Like, what do you, like, what kind of teacher? And, you know, there's like a genuine kind of reverence it's kind of like their status you know which is a way to compensate people like money is not the only form of compensation um but i want to ask you guys like do you think that thing where in america where people you tell someone you're a teacher and people are like oh thank you so much for doing this job that's so shitty like is that a little bit is there a little overlap there with 
how sometimes some people respond to members of the military. Like there's a sort of like, thank you for doing this. So I don't have to. Uh, that's part of it. Uh, I think there's part of it where um, you, you maybe couldn't have done something else. And so you just kind of settled for teaching. I think there are, I think a lot of teachers have a passion for it uh, and they should be compensated monetarily or otherwise, but yeah, there's something to what you're saying, but I, I, I don't know. It's hard to say my wife's a teacher and she does it because she loves uh, having uh, influence over kids to the point that she can see them develop to a place mm -hmm. where they weren't when she first met them. Yeah. What does she, she teach? Uh, special ed kids oh, with wow. autism. And what, what age? Uh, elementary school. Huh? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's an incredible cognitive and emotional physical challenge. Like, right. Like if you're, if you're doing it right, teaching is like the just incredibly dynamic, challenging job. Yeah. It's, I, I know it's hard because my wife is tired and impatient when she comes home. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I don't know much about the, the thank you for your service versus uh, thank you for being a teacher. Um, although I, I, I think that it may have been different uh, in the years after the, the draft was gone and service was voluntary again. Like maybe people actually felt like you, I don't have to go to the military because you have volunteered. Uh, so I really do appreciate that. But I think that that's faded, especially my generation. It's been voluntary for so many years that um, I think I say it out of respect more than any kind of genuine uh like i'm glad that i don't have to type, mm -hmm. type of deal mm -hmm. yeah like yeah, that's kind of a deep question amanda i, I wasn't ready i, for I that. just hit you with that like boom it really yeah. it was like two very separate planes of existence but Sorry. It's an, it it's just an occurred to me and i just couldn't help it <laughs> no i but it's an excellent excellent segue i think that we'd be remiss if we didn't bring up this uh new article because we have a given that we have a veteran as a co-host um on on the mystery of trust in the U.S., um, I think uh, Paul and I have both read it. But do you want to go ahead and give a rundown of, of the article? The yeah, I guess this is, this is on my mind, which is why I like randomly threw it out there. I mean, I think it's just on my mind a lot right now that um, if I have to distill what is most broken in this country right now, not that anyone asked, but if you want to ask, I'd say... We're, we're asking. <laughs> What's most broken? Okay, thank you. Uh, I would say that the distrust is so deep of institutions, of one another, of the news media, of government, and, and you really can't function, right? As we've seen, you can't function if everything is doubted uh, and nobody trusts anything. Um, you can't solve even the problems that we could solve and we all want to solve. And there are a lot of those, you know? Um, so we can't like reach our potential or anything close to it as, as a people with that low level of trust. And there are good reasons why trust is really low, but uh, I was really curious about like, well, where's the outlier here? Like usually there's always a good story in the exceptions, right? So the one large institution that Americans still trust is the US military. And the numbers are really striking. Um, and actually it's true in other countries too. So then it was like this, this piece for Comment Magazine, which I think is finally now up um, uh, online, but the, it's basically trying to talk to smarter people than I am to figure out like, why is this? What can other institutions learn from the military, if anything? You know, obviously it's different in many ways, but we need to rebuild trust in this country. And I think it's like an emergency. Um, so this is one small, you know, attempt to 
to throw a dart at the board and be like, where, where could we get some inspiration? And, and why is it that Americans trust the military so much and, and almost nothing else? Yeah. How did you get to this question of uh, who can we trust at the large institution level? There, you know, there's actually a ton of um, polling that happens on this for some reason. And it's happened for a, a long time. Gallup, Pew, a bunch of different places do this question every year or so where they ask a huge number of Americans, you know, to sort of rank their confidence level in different institutions. Like, do you, do you mostly trust this institution? So they do like big business, um, healthcare, uh, edu- you know, higher ed colleges, uh, news media, and, and everything's kind of just been going down or been flat uh, for a very long time. So, and recently the decline has intensified. So, um, so it's, a, it's a question to say, well, um, we could bemoan that, right? Which is good and fine, but, but also like, how do we fix that? And so one way to get at that potentially is to look at the exception, which is, which is the military. And the only other exception is small businesses. Um, mm. Americans still trust small businesses. Well, mm. they, they can talk to the owner typically, or they can at least uh, get to know the value system of that small business where large institutions, those value systems are either horribly eroded or just too broad for the typical person to understand. Yeah. 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 Kind of makes sense. My, my intuition is that like as trust wouldn't really scale uh, once you get to a certain size um, of, of just an institution, but um and, and I think we can definitely all feel the decline in trust in uh, government and media in particular. Um, but for, as far as uh, w- one of the things you do in the article is kind of lay out some of the things that the, the military has done and because they weren't always in this position of, of trust from the public. And part of it involved this kind of inward look reform and then fo- following that reform up with, uh, with the PR campaign uh, and like really killer advertising and really creative marketing. Um, so <clears throat> how, how do you see that kind of strategy? Like, do you think that that could map to institutions like the media or, or the government to maybe reinstill some trust? Yeah, I think so. I mean, it might be naive, but I think, um, you know, we know there's like two kinds of trust and one is cognitive trust where it's like sort of the things you you know, you would expect, like, if someone show up on time? Do they deliver when they say they're going to deliver? Like, do they, are they usually honest? You know, those are kind of the basic, you know, trust with your head, um, rational trust. And then, but there's also this thing called affective trust in the research, which is more like with your heart, like, does this person get me? Like, do they, like, can I like, kind of just vibe with this person? Like, is this, do they have values that I share? Right. Um, and usually the first kind, the head trust comes first, right? Like, and then you start to build that heart trust potentially. Um, and then once you get that heart trust, it's kind of like you can do no wrong. Like it kind of takes over. And then even if someone's late or they let you down, you kind of, you overlook it, right? We all do this with like old friends or, you know, people we admire or whatever. And um, so you get into this really nice positive feedback loop um, once you can get back that that intellectual rational trust. So how would it look like for the government, right? I mean, or for con- let's look at Congress, right? There's one where we know Americans deeply, deeply distrust Congress. So 
you know, you'd want to do a wholesale reform of Congress and it'd have to be super open and public and transparent, which is one thing the military did in the 80s. Um, and it was painful, like it was ugly. And there were lots of people who thought it was a terrible idea. Um, and, and I don't think it was like, you know, perfect. But the idea is there was like big, difficult questions were asked about uh, readiness and performance. And big changes were made in the structure of the military and, and maybe not enough, maybe not the right ones, but that seems to me like a fairly obvious way that you could start with democracy, right? With the electoral system or with Congress, like if we don't trust Congress, nobody trusts Congress. Okay. Let's talk about that. Let's like bring in a lot of voices and hear like, what are all the concerns about Congress and what are the ones we care most about as a country? And what are the most like, creative ideas we could come up with to fix those problems, right? Mm. Because that's not, they're not impossible problems, but they're problems of design, right? So we have designed a Congress that we hate and that we don't trust. And it's incentivized to continue being that way, right? Just the way we do elections, the way we do politics. Mm. So it could be designed differently, right? Like it's in our control. It's sort of like social media. Like these things are designed by humans. Like I don't have to tell you guys, like, they could be designed differently. Like it's not that hard. Um, so, yep. so some of it is going through that, that process to regain a little bit, claw back a little bit of that cognitive trust. Yeah. Um, like the two things that come to mind immediately for me are the, are campaign finance reform and uh, imposing term limits. I hear those get bandied about a lot and I kind of am in agreement with a lot of it. Um, I think that, you know, you're absolutely right that it's it's a self i guess it's a it's a survive it's a it's a organization that's focused on or maybe organism is a better word it's an organism that's 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 focused on its own kind of survival and perpetuating its own existence and and main, uh, and maintaining power and yeah. acquiring more yeah. power yeah yeah so it's kind of like it's it's an impressive feat that the military did that even to that extent um given that uh, you know there's probably a lot of people that didn't want things to change. Mm -hmm. It is right. And it took, I mean, things had to get pretty bad before they did it. So um, maybe, maybe it's time for, for other institutions. Like, well, the cognitive part, I mean, you broke it down very succinctly. It's ability, benevolence, and integrity. And when I say those three words and, and I think of Congress, there's not a lot there. Right. There just simply isn't integrity. You start to laugh like Daniel did benevolence. Mm -hmm. I don't think they have my best interest at heart. I really don't. Ability, sure. I, I I believe they have the ability to pass legislation. I just don't believe. I believe the other two they get really low marks, and I don't know what the catalyst is to change that. There needs to be a reckoning, and it will be painful for those in power. And I don't know. I don't know what unseats that. I, mm -hmm. I really don't. It, it, I think to your point, we're human. It's uh, a human design. We can develop a different design. The challenge is how do we implement that different design? Yeah, I mean, I think Daniel's point about campaign finance reform, like that's that's something that would be one way, because part of what you're talking about, the, the way they're incentivized to just keep perpetuating their own power is about fundraising, like House members mm -hmm. fundraise, they, they win the election, the next day they're, they have to fundraise, and it just right. never ends. And th so that's that's not their fault, right? Like that's the nature of the system that we've designed. And so that's one thing, right? Another Another one would be, term limits, like you said. Another one that I'm really into uh, and need to learn more about is, is ranked choice voting and things that allow voters to 
Um, so you, you know, for people who don't know, you, you basically, the idea is you could vote for like three people for your, um, for your member of Congress, for example, right? And you're, you're number one, you're number two, you're number three. If your number one doesn't get enough votes, then your votes go to the number two choice you had. So that way you kind of get heard even if you don't have a winner take all candidate, right? And uh, there's different ways to do this. There's a million different boring complexities here, but the idea is um, you can help maybe by, by encouraging third parties, maybe by, um, having a, a more nuanced way of voting, kind of break the false binary that we're in, like Republican, mm -hmm. Democrat, like these, these kind of dividing the whole country into these two colors, red and blue is insane. And it, it brings up all of our worst instincts, I think. Uh, yeah, and it's like the, the circus act uh, of, the, of the presidential primaries, deciding that like thinning everybody out to just two different uh, candidates. I, fir I first heard about ranked choice voting uh, as one of Andrew Yang's policies. And then I, I kept reading about him and I read his book. Quick, quick alert. Daniel loves Andrew Yang. <laughs> I, was, I was about to say, um, I think that I, I'm trying to figure out the moment that it went from cognitive to affective trust. Yeah. Yeah. Right. I, think, I, I think it might be, might've been around the point where I got him to, to sign a poster and now it's hanging on my wall. So oh, yeah, it's, yes. it's, it's just an endless loop. Yeah. Of love. <laughs> yeah. He can do no wrong now. <laughs> Well, yeah, but then I actually, I was actually disappointed that he, um, he went and joined CNN and like, I think he's kind of falling in line in a way with a lot of the establishment uh, in a way that he wasn't when he first started uh, his mm -hmm. race for, for president. So he's, yeah, he, he better start making up that lost ground. Uh, but yeah, no, I, I really liked what he had to say and ranked choice voting. It's like one of those things where you hear the idea, and you're like, why wasn't this implemented 30 years ago? Right, right. It makes so much sense. And they've done research on it. And even in like um, experiments, Americans who do it as like a game, not even real, uh, end up like much more satisfied afterward and, and less um, resentful of the other side, even if they, their candidates lose, right? Like, so we know that in democracies that have ranked choice voting, they tend to be a little less polarized. And whether that's the reason, we don't know. But just common sense, like you said, would imply that this seems more fair because it is more fair. Yeah, I have one more um, quote uh, that I, I actually prepared because I felt like it would become relevant. Um, it's by uh, Douglas um, Adams. Hold on, Amanda. Uh, Daniel went to William and Mary. It's very academically oriented and they don't really do anything else. So he's extremely prepared. For this. <laughs> okay. I thought, I thought Paul was going to comment on my uh, lack of social skills, but instead he commented <laughs> on my academic ability. So thank you, Paul. You're, that's a compliment. That. Absolutely. <laughs> um, so the quote is Douglas Adams, the author of uh, Hitchhiker's, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Yeah. And he says, one of the many major problems with governing people is that of whom you get to do it or rather of who manages to get people to let them do it to them. To summarize, it is a well-known fact that those people who must want to rule people are ipso facto, those least suited to do it. So <laughs> this idea that like the people who are attracted to being a politician are the, you know, megalomaniacal uh, jerks uh, that right. end up like, you know, does that, I don't, I don't know if that really affects the military as much as it does, like it, it might just be there's a difference in the DNA between the institutions of the government and the military hmm. in that sense. Yeah, well, well, you could screen for that, right? Like I once was like trying to come up, I asked a bunch of people like, let, let's say we wanted to do a debate totally differently for candidates. 
Uh, we And so we know anyone who runs for president is a narcissist, right? Like there's no mm. other way, but there's degrees of narcissism, right? Like there's, there's like, I mean, everyone has some narcissism, right? So it's, it's sort of like, how do you figure out when this person's so narcissistic that it's actually like dysfunctional, right? Mm -hmm. And so how could you screen for that in the process? Um, so one question somebody came up with was ask each candidate in the debates to name one of their kids' best friends. Oh, nice. Oh, you love that one? Yeah, that's yeah. great. Some people just wouldn't be able to do it. Yeah, most of them. Like 90% <laughs> yes. of them couldn't do it. Yeah, but wouldn't it be cool to know which one could? Yes. You know, and then you'd have to wow. fact check that, I guess. All, uh, you would have to fact check it, but all else being equal, I'm voting for that person. Totally. Can you imagine yeah. one of them just like just hip firing a random name? <laughs> yeah, just yeah. Like, okay. Yes. I you mean like every politician that's in Congress <laughs> right now? Not everyone, but you get the point. Most of them. Yeah, yeah. Oh, man. That, that's a good one. We need a top 10, Amanda. Don't you think? I feel like yeah. there's a listicle here, something that we could. I really think we could do a better job of, you know, I had the debates were just so terrible this year. I don't know if you guys, I mean, I couldn't even watch them. I was just like, what the I, hell is this? I turned the first one off. Yes. It, yeah. it was it was brutal. They got worse and worse too. And it just felt like, is this the best we can do? Like, really? The, the, the answer is no, but apparently the, the answer is yes for 2020. I just, there's so many graphics and like, oh my God. And like, dun, dun, you know, and it's like, oh my God, nobody needs this. You know, like it's, it's like, it's WWE. It's yeah, like, this, yeah. this is, this is like one of the things about, you know, we're talking about trust, especially in the media institutions. Like it feels like we're watching entertainment more often than we're watching reporting. Right. Like, and not even good entertainment. Like uh, this uh, colleague of mine, Tina Rosenberg wrote this great piece for the times like a year ago about how, like just pointing out the irony that, Currently, TV, like fictional TV shows, have more realistic, complicated characters than the, t than the news. You know what I mean? Than the actual news. Like, how is that possible that, like, sometimes journalists underestimate the complexity that their audiences can handle. And so they flatten out everything into, like, good versus evil, us versus them, like, you know, Democrat versus Republican. And, like, Make everybody like really one dimensional. Whereas you turn on like any number of 20 TV shows we could all name right now. And mm -hmm. they're like incredibly complicated, rich characters with many motivations, not just one with, with inner tensions and uncertainty and, you know, uh, uh, characters that change over time, but you would never see that in like a politics story. Well, yeah. Have you ever in, in your work as a, as a journalist, have you ever felt like, uh, tempted or pressured to kind of go into that sort of simplified, uh, listen here, dumb audience, orange man, bad, like overly simplified type of, uh, of language. Um, yeah. All the time. Yeah. And I, I think I've probably done it without even realizing it. Like I've tried to get a lot more conscious of that and try to keep the complexity in the story and just hold it. Not like if the detail doesn't fit my theory just keep it in there you know like I think I think it's okay especially when you're writing about really polarizing things um, you really have to try to portray the complexity of of the of the people and the issues and the characters like in a way that you might in a really great tv show uh, but it is there is this kind of legacy tradition of of needing feeling like we need to simplify things and make it really pithy where does that come from? What are the forces that drive us to uh, do that with corporate 
um, media? Well, I think one is just hyper-competitive markets, right? Like um, if the cheapest, easiest, laziest way to get clicks on a story is through just feeding those narratives that are already mm. getting, you know, a certain percentage of the population really aggravated or um, just like on social media, like any attention economy, right? Like Twitter and, and Facebook and YouTube are playing the same game. It's just, they're doing it much more efficiently than CNN because they have, because right. it's algorithmic, right? So like- right they're not making human judgments about what the news is. Uh, they're making uh, machine judgments, right? So anytime people, human attention is the commodity that you're trying to capture, then there can be like a race to the bottom, right? To that, But that's kind of a cop-out too, because I actually don't think that's the full story. I think a lot of it is just um, people not challenging the convention and a lack of imagination. Like, in newsrooms about what audiences want, you know, like um, just because people click on something, it's like when you go by a car crash, right? Like you might stare at it, but you don't want it, right. <laughs> you know? Yeah. So, so I do think some of it's like not enough journalists have tried hard enough to do something else consistently. Um, but I think that's changing in some places. I think there are particularly at the local level, news outlets that are really changing how they, how they deliver the news and people are really into it. Like audiences will, will, will go with you um, on that journey and they don't just want to be like frightened or enraged. Yeah, I was going to ask you, do you worry about the future of journalism in this country? It sounds like you're heartened, at least in some spots. Uh, but in general, are you worried about journalism? Because if we look at the, the track record over the last, I, I don't know, and you're the expert here, Amanda, the last 15 to 20 years, we seem to be going in the wrong direction in a pretty rapid uh, way. I'm deeply, profoundly worried about it. I, I'm very worried about it. And I don't know... Um, I think there are solutions to it. I think you can restore trust. I think you can do news differently. And like I said, I think there are some, some pockets of people doing really cool stuff, um, like really linking arms with their audiences and saying like, what is something that you've always wanted to know that we can help you find out? You know, like there's a company called Harkin that does this with newsrooms all over the country, um, listening to their audiences in, in like deep, meaningful ways, instead of talking to them from on high and telling them, what to think. Mm. So th that's really cool, but I don't see that happening at the national level. Um, and I worry a lot about the fact that we don't have a national news outlet that both political sides trust. That's a big, big problem. Yeah, so, we, we, we should have several. Yeah, we should have several. We should have yeah. like a whole like category and uh, other countries do. And, you know, it actually came up, I was interviewing a bunch of reporters and people who work in conflict zones in anticipation of the election and trying to think like, what can we learn from, from these people who have seen political violence up close for many, many years. And this guy from Sierra Leone, he kept bringing this up. He was like, you know, forgive me if I'm, if I'm wrong, but I don't think you have a news outlet that people trust uh, across the political divide. I'm like, yeah, I think you're right. <laughs> and he's like, how's that possible? Like, how can you function? You know, and so they've worked really hard there to build a network of radio stations that most people trust. Um, and when people trust you, then a whole bunch of other things follow. Like you can do things like the media is trying to do now here that are, are not working the way they want. Like for example, in Sierra Leone, he was telling me if, if a candidate goes on the air live and starts saying things that are not true, 
that might lead to violence, which happens all the time. <laughs> yep. Uh, they just cut the mic. You know, that's it. Like you're done. And mm. that candidate gets pissed or whatever, and there might be some blowback. But because most of the audience already trust them across the political divide, it's okay. But in the United States, if you if you cut off of, you know, Fox News leaves a Trump uh, spokesperson's press conference right now, as has happened now, conservatives, a lot of them that I talk to, feel like, what the hell just happened? You know, because they don't trust the reasons behind that. And so, you know, it's kind of like trust precedes facts, uh, is, is the way one person put it to me from this organization called Spaceship Media, which is another another good one. But um, so, yeah, there's there are people doing this work and I'd love to see it happen at the national level. So yeah. can you give us some some shout outs on like I'm like really looking for places to get news that's that's not trying to like piece together a Frankenstein from the two <laughs> opposing things. So where do you like to go, uh, you know, local and national level uh, to get your news? Man, you know, you guys have to tell me what you found because I have not found at the national level the answer. Um, I think um, for for like COVID news, like um, let me pull it up here. So so it is really important to get information about the pandemic, right? Like that's <laughs> something that I think we all uh, can appreciate. And and then you did see a huge spike actually in news audiences in audiences going to all kinds of news uh, and particularly nonpartisan news after the pandemic began. And within like four weeks, people were just like burned out. They were just like, oh my God, I can't take this anymore. It's so negative, so overwhelming, so lacking in like context. Right. Uh, so stat news, I really like for, for that kind of stuff, um, statnews.com. And it's just like statistically grounded uh, journalism. So a lot of it's about you know, public health, not all of it, but mostly. And I find it really like, it's just, it's just like they're putting things in perspective and helping you make sense of the world as opposed to just like scaring you. Um, right. So that's, that's legit. what I like. Do you guys have any, any that you can recommend? I, I only half jokingly have one. Uh, I listen to a lot of Joe Rogan and he, as you know, he's a comedian mm -hmm. and literally I've heard people that, consider themselves journalists saying we have to resort to listen to Joe Rogan to get to any semblance of the truth. <laughs> and I, th I think Joe Rogan laughs at that because he knows he's a comedian, but uh, there's a little bit of truth to uh, what those journalists have said. Yeah. Yeah. yeah and for me, I'll, I'll shout out uh, Glenn Greenwald. Uh, he's a firebrand, but I love the guy and I think he has a, he's dedicated to truth. So um, yeah. Uh, I, but he's, he's more, I don't know. I, he, he reports on selective things as opposed to like a more right. There's not like one outlet that'll give you everything you need to know, you know, that day. Yeah. Yeah. And Glenn Greenwald's a vegan. So shout out. But uh, <laughs> yeah, if you couldn't tell Daniel's a vegan, I'm the, vegan, <laughs> one of the two of us. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. my indirect way of saying I have to tell every guest, Amanda. I'm sorry. It's that's that's, part, not, it's that's part not true. Of, part of being a vegan, I just have to say it. So. Yeah, it's like so. Which which do you tend to say more like first in every podcast? An something about Andrew Yang or the vegan thing? <laughs> like which comes first, and do you get like a prize for saying it? <laughs> I get to pat myself on the back that night. It's usually Andrew <laughs> Yang, uh, but I try to get both in naturally if I can. Nice, good job yeah. tonight. Good job. Thank you. Yeah, it, it, it depends out. on it depends on the guests. Usually, I'll bring up the vegan thing for Daniel. <laughs> oh yeah, that's, yeah, that was a nice assist. Was, this has been awesome, yeah. though, Amanda. Yeah, we're, yeah, we're right. At, we're right at time, and uh, 
we are cutting this at an hour uh, because you are a, a great parent, I imagine. Uh, and you say, hey, I don't want to be away from my kids for more than an hour. And so I, I love that as a parent. I respect that. We had a well, great wait, time talking to Just to, to clarify, I, I'm happy to be away from my kids for more than an hour. But at <laughs> night, I do. I, ha- I like to have dinner with them, you know, so. But most of the time, an hour is not long enough. That's, so. a, that's a great clarification. <laughs> I understand. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Amanda, and uh, great chatting with you. I enjoyed yeah. it. Thanks, guys. Take care. Thanks for All having right. me. All right, see ya. Bye-bye. If you enjoyed this episode, feel free to subscribe through whichever app you're using. To share your thoughts, head over to our website at podso1.io, and there you can comment on episodes or send us feedback directly. Thanks for listening.